Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lighten the Pipes. This is the first of our Sherlock Select series for the summer, where Josh and myself, Scott, go back into our old catalog of episodes and pull out some of our favorites to share in a much more uh, reduced format, maybe, to uh, our full episodes that we are going to release as part of season three. How are you doing, Josh? I'm doing just fine, Scott. Good. Good. I hope everyone out there is doing good as well. Mm -hmm. Everyone's health and safe and maybe got their first jab, so to speak. Um, mine's coming up soon, so I'm looking forward to that, getting back into civilization. Mm -hmm. I've already cut my hair, as Scott can see in the picture <laughs> of uh, on video. Yeah, I, I, I grew... I likened myself earlier on with my long hair and beard as a Plantagenet king, although my mom <laughs> called me a bum. So I'll go with Plantagenet uh, king. Thank you. Who was, what was the name of the hunter in The Devil's Foot? Uh, you remember that uh, Sherlock story that, um, you know, the, the, the perpetrator oh, who had the main... The, the one in Cornwall. I remember. That's right, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was like the, he was like the Richard Burton-esque explorer. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Not yeah. the actor, but like the old explorer from like right, the, yeah. the, the Hemingway the figure. Century. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, you Sir a bit Richard like Burton looked a bit like that. Very good. Yeah. I'll go with Plantagenet King, like Edward the Third or something like that. Not Edward the Second or, or or something, but you know. So, Josh, what what are we doing here? We're just having a little. Um, what what are we doing here? Well, essentially, we're sort of highlighting case files from Sherlock Holmes, and as well remembering, or sorry, reminding everyone that while we are dealing, with, we did deal while we did deal with other detectives so far, like Philip Marlowe, and recently uh, Didius Falco, for example, we're not forgetting where we came from, and that's Sherlock mm -hmm. Holmes. Yeah, and so we want to remember, we want to remind you that we'll be going back to the world of Sherlock every now and then, uh, maybe even revisiting, you know. These things, all, some select up, some select stories all over again, or maybe even delving into a few of Jeremy Brett classics and giving <laughs> our own analysis of them as adaptations. You never yeah. know. All right. And we just thought it would be a nice way to um, kind of provide a few filler episodes while you're waiting for some of our bigger reads to uh, to share our highlights from our earliest season, uh, which of course went through the, the Sherlock Holmes canon. And today, both uh, Josh and I are, are going to give a little uh, a reintroduction. I guess we're going to revisit and reintroduce a couple of our favorite stories throughout the summer. So this one we're going to go for is the Abbey Grange, which was published mm -hmm. at the uh, the end of the return of the Sherlock Holmes, if I'm correct. That's right. Your other story I think you chose, that's in uh, The Last Bow, right? Yes. It's the, it's, the, yeah. it's, the, it's the return of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah. This was from, yeah, the Abbey Grange comes from the return of Sherlock Holmes, the third complete set of close of um, short stories. And Josh, this was this was your selection. Why don't you say just a few words about it? Um, we had a great time talking about it, as the listeners will hear, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, why don't you say a few words about the uh, the story? Sure. It's a Sherlock Holmes adventure that you can kind of pick out random. And if you wanted to tell someone, if you want to read just a meat and potato Sherlock Holmes story, get a feel about what those stories are like. I mean, you know, we, we have mentioned that for a novel, if you want to get into Sherlock Holmes, read The Hound of the Baskervilles. But if you just want to get a t quick taste of Sherlock Holmes and what he's like and have a really good whodunit and something also kind of examine something culturally that was sort of becoming more and more apparent at that turn of the century time when it was written, such as what this story indicates is like domestic violence, essentially. Uh, this is a good story to read. And it kind of shows the mindset of Arthur Conan Doyle and how... These particular stories that he wrote, Sherlock Holmes stories I'm referring to, were very advanced for their time in which they were written. 
Yeah, and this one particularly, Josh, contains a very famous opening, doesn't it? The opening where uh, Watson is in bed and he gets woken up. <laughs> and of course, you get the first, I think that is the only utterance of the game is afoot, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And we talk about that on our episode. So um, we, we won't say too much about it here. But yeah, it's a really famous opening. And the case itself, it's uh, kind of like a locked room mystery, sort of a locked room mystery. But which, headed uh, to Kent anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good old Kent, full of its English history, um, going back very, very way back, we should say. Uh, the whole gothic kind of feel of the story, it's Abbey Grange. So it used to be, as they mentioned, one of the abbeys that was discontinued or... Uh, I think it might have been around the time when uh, Henry VIII decided to steal all the money from the monasteries because yeah. the Catholic Church was, wasn't was doing any good for him whatsoever mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this story has got some great character writing in it too, so I think it was quite an inspired choice on your part. We've got Holmes and Watson. Their relationship is quite nicely flushed out here. We've got moments of kind of Holmesian doubt and reconsideration on the train. Yes, and that it's, little it's really moment a, of... Yeah. Uh, yeah, reconsideration, but Holmesian also spontaneity. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, I'm really pleased that you selected this one for our, our little um, our little redux, if you can think of it that way, because uh, I enjoyed reading it, and um, I think we've got we, we had a really good chat at the time when we re- when we read it the first time through, and it's been fun to revisit it. So uh, we hope everybody that you uh, you enjoy this, and um, we'll be back soon, of course, with our episode on Ellis Peters. A Morbid Taste for Bones. That's our next big episode coming very shortly. So for now, we hope you enjoy this replay of our earlier talk on the Abbey Grange from the return of Sherlock Holmes. Enjoy. So that's two stories down of the last four tales of uh, the return of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I will say within your musical choice there, <laughs> that was more evocative of the Thames boat chase yeah, uh, than it definitely was of that of that uh, carriage ride that Holmes <laughs> went on following the doctor. I know. I know. You I know. may as well just have called like your local cable provider and be put on hold. <laughs> that's how exciting <laughs> the music would, would be for that chase. Yeah. You're right. And that kind of makes me think of my plot summary. I was talking about the adventure of the roadside assistance call. <laughs> yeah. Same hey, thing. Man. You know, sometimes you got to put your blinkers on, you know, and you got to, it's, it's inconvenient, you know, I mean. <laughs> it is. It really is. <laughs> on to the adventure of the Abbey Grange. Is it appropriate to be saying the adventure of? That's the way my book has it written. And that's the way the Klinger edition has it written. But I see them referred to as just the titles, you know. Yeah, the adventures, yes. It, it depends on, I think, on the, what editions you have. Hmm. Uh, to me, this is more of the mystery of Abbey Grange. I'll just say that right away. Well, the Goodreads Index review average for the adventure uh, mystery of the Abbey Grange is 3.9 out of 5. And Matt gave it a five-star review, saying, There was a good story with a nice finish to this case. It's another instance where the often cold Sherlock uses his heart when pronouncing final judgment. Now, that's a soundbite I don't mind sharing. You know, a lot of these we make fun of, a lot of these we pick up. Matt, good on you, buddy, because you're giving me something that is concise and articulate and shares an opinion. Exactly. He put all those three things in, into mm-hmm. the review. 
Props to you, boy. Props to you. As opposed to uh, this girl, who I think confused her review on the Abbey Grange, maybe with a personal ad. Um, I like adventure. And then her name, which I think I'll uh, I'll keep out here. Are you sure, sure it was a girl, or was that like yeah. Ralph Wiggum? <laughs> I think it's a girl. I like adventure. I, th- I think it was a girl. Uh, then I got this one. Uh, two stars. In almost all detective stories, there comes a case when the detective has to make a judgment call whether to acquit the criminal or not, to determine who's the bigger criminal, who did the bigger sin. This one's like that. Two stars. Hmm. Uh, and deep. deep, yeah. And then Raoul with a four-star review. Through the first part of the story, it was quite interesting. There was a brief disenchantment to encounter, but it was the only reasonable answer to all the quest. Was it? I don't know what that means. <laughs> Um, bad English, maybe? I have no idea. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, my friend, The Adventure of the Abbey Grange, in the September edition of The Strand, 1904, and in December of Collier's in 1904. Uh, Collier's decided to defer the release of the final four stories of The Return to focus on having a huge Christmas issue. So that's the reason that this story, which was the 12th of 12, was published in sequence properly by The Strand, but Collier's in America decided to withhold it because they wanted their December edition to be a big seller. Of course. But I've got I got a bit more information on that if you're interested. Capitalism. Huzzah. Mm-hmm. Huzzah, indeed. On the 26th of April, 1904, Doyle wrote to editor Greenhouse Smith and told him that Holmes was now finished. He had finished his 12 promised stories, and he could now rest. In fact, he wrote Requiescet Pace, or Rest in Peace. It would appear, though, that this was Doyle's intended final home story. There are several clues in the writing to suggest this, too, such as, and I'm not going to step on your plot summary, don't worry, such as, one, the fact that Holmes tells Watson, or us, the readers, that he was going to write a textbook on deduction, the fact that Holmes is at his best, lots of vigor, lots of sophistication, and the fact that Holmes exercises extra-legal liberties in discharging Captain Crocker. Anyway, we'll see what you think about it, because this isn't, of course, Holmes's last adventure. Doyle had one more commitment uh, to come, and that came in the form of The Second Stain, which was a commission by his friend Sam McClure, and I'll say more about that in a few minutes when we get there. But basically, uh, although this was supposed to be the end, McClure... An Irish publisher, friend of Doyle's, had offered him £75,000 at the time for 12 more stories or £25,000 for a one-off novella, which is why we get the second stain, uh, which was then pared down for a short story. But we'll talk about that next time. I didn't want to step on your toes too much. Oh, really? Yeah, well, I, well, yeah, yeah. Well, second stain, we'll talk about that for sure. I can definitely have seen that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Let's move this puppy along, brother. Give me a plot summary on the Abbey Grange. So, you know, we were talking about Lord Mount James and, uh, you know, him being a miserly son of a bitch in his own kind of way. Well, he's got nothing on Sir Eustace Brackenhall. The Adventure of the Abbey Grange or When Sherlock Holmes Handles a Delicate Situation with Delicacy. <laughs> this yarn begins in media rests with Hopkins, a.k.a. Lestrade 2.0, wiring Holmes and Watson out to Abbey Grange, an estate just outside of Chiselwurst. 
I don't know where that is. I the do. owner of the state, Sir Eustace Brackenhall, has been murdered. His skull caved in by what appears to be a fireplace poker. Twas burglars, Hopkins offers, probably the Randall gang, given the M.O. Obliging Hopkins in Scotland Yard, Holmes gets to work on his bloodhound skills, whilst Watson does this thing, his thing, I suppose, whatever that is. To be fair, Watson does have a tangible element in this story, as well as one could argue in other stories of this collection, and that is to simply sprout wood every time a delicate lady enters the picture. <laughs> yeah, he does do that. Poor guy, he must miss Mary something awful. Wait, is she dead at this time the story takes place? <laughs> Never mind. With Watson's engorged description, the fierce blonde, <laughs> blue-eyed Australian bride of Sir Eustace enters the picture. Can I just the interrupt headstrong... you for a second? Yes, sir. What does it say about us, and I don't mean us, me, and you, I mean us humans, that a dick joke can always stop and get a laugh? Uh, we still have a bit more to go before <laughs> okay. we, we, uh, we, we reach perfection like the Vulcan race. Okay, cheers. <laughs> Spock would just shake his head right now. Hmm. Anyways, with Watson's engorged description, the fierce, blonde, blue-eyed Australian bride of Sir Eustace enters the picture. This headstrong Sheila, that's an Australian term for a woman, Thank received you. a good walloping from the Randalls, the blow bruising her eye, keeping her senseless as her husband was killed just feet away from her. Lady Brackenhall had been found by Teresa Wright, her loyal maid and body servant that arrived with her from Australia when she was betrothed to Sir Eustace. She was tied up in a chair, bound by the torn bell cord in the dining room. The lady does not omit a single detail, except perhaps what actually happened to Holmes, describing how she saw through the large French window, looking into the lawn, the Randall gang entering the house, the elder Randall choking her out, his homer to her Bart, punching her in the face to incapacitate her, and utilizing the frayed bell cord to retrain her, restrain her from to, to the chair. Now, Sir Eustace, who was not a nice man, she admits, is in fact, is rather a raging, abusive alcoholic who often berated her verbally and beat her came charging into the room where he had, he received the ultimate price for his heroism, a fatal blow to the head. Oh, well, what goes around comes around. Let's just say the open and shuddedness of this case irks Holmes considerably, even more so than their slightly less irksome evidence of three wine glasses poured by the Randall gang after their break-in and the commission of their murderous act. But Holmes is too pissed at a boring clear-cut case like this one and huffs off with Watson trailing behind him back to London. Lestrade 2.0 has got this one. The Randall Ginger are the culprits. They just have to track the rascals down before they flee to America. Halfway back to London, Holmes' delayed powers of deduction kick in. I guess he needed that iOS upgrade after all. The three wine glasses, the B-swing being poured into the third glass. Yup, this was another observation. The frayed bell cord that was down from the ceiling and used to bind Lady Brackenhall. All of this does not compute. Sherlock EXE is not responding. Something is wrong. Holmes heads back to Abbey Grange. Watson, dutiful as ever, follows along. Ready for a second go at the case, Holmes interviews the maid and inspects the dining room where Sir Eustace was killed. More nasty stories of the Vic pop up, the maid going into detail on the physical and verbal blandishments Sir Eustace put on his wife, including a corker of a tale regarding Sir Eustace setting Lady Brackenhall's dog on fire. Yeah, why do we care about this guy's death? Oh, right, due process, public order, etc., etc., Whilst in the dining room, Holmes examines the frayed bell cord and in this moment solves the proverbial Gordian knot. He spideys up onto the mantel, seeing the height in which the cord was cut and examining the knots used for the binding. Then he drops the bomb on Lady Brackenhall. So what really happened here? But Lady Brackenhall, fierce at the continent that made her, presses she has told all that she knows. Holmes gives her one more chance, but she has an iron will, that one. In his most chivalrous move in all of his adventures so far, Holmes returns to London, not disclosing with Hopkins' new findings in the case, 
Surprise, surprise, this is breaking news. Water equals wet. He instead engages an inquiry based on the gathered clues and tracks down Mr. Jack Croker, captain of the vessel Rock of Gibraltar, the same vessel that Lady Brackenstall traveled to England years before. He was first officer at the time when he made her acquaintance and fell in love with the lady. Oh, young love, it was not to be requited, at least not yet. Lady Brack went to become well, Lady Brack, and the grains of the hourglass fell where they may. It was only when vacationing near Abbey Grains that he heard word of a POS Sir Eustace really was. Yes, yes, so he went to see if, if she was all right. And Eustace caught her in conversing with him and went to apeshit, striking her down with a cudgel and going for Croker. Croker defended himself a little too well with the poker and Bob's your uncle, mate. Croker, Lady Brack, and Miss Wright set the illusion of the break-in, complete with the three wine glasses, cutting down the bell rope to complete the picture and dumping the stolen valuables, just some plate, really, in the pond outside, all suggested by the clues that Holmes was able to piece together. But that's not all, folks. Holmes has already learned from Hopkins that the Randalls were arrested stateside that every very evening, and that new suspects would have to be looked for at the Brackenhall murder. A calculating machine and a gentleman, Holmes pulls legal rank and all but declares Croker an innocent man, even giving him a head start and a future past with wedded bliss with his Aussie beloved. Ah. You know what? <clears throat> there are elements of this story, teased out in your plot summary there, that remind me of the uh, a case of identity, a really early one, or mm -hmm. an earlier adventure, because we've got marriage laws things going on here, you know, like this idea of divorce and separation, and, and Brackenstall not able to, to acquire that, and almost like the death of this guy is, is necessary, so that this female character can be exonerated and and I think you know in a, in a not exonerated I'm sorry uh, freed and I think that there's a real gentility to this story to its morality kind of you know yes to me yeah I was kind of I wouldn't I wasn't trying to be too humorous there even though I had that dick joke in there because That's it's good. true I just want to point out right now okay let's just go to that just give me a second here let's just look at examples here of our dear Watson okay Are you, are you about to justify his literary erection? I'm, I'm about to justify his literary erection, indeed, sir. Okay, well, don't let me get in the way of that. Don't let me cock block you. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Lady Brackenstall was no ordinary person. Seldom have I seen so graceful a figure, so womanly a present, and so beautiful a face. She was a blonde, golden-haired, blue-eyed, and would, no doubt... I've had the perfect Wood, complexion, <laughs> which goes with such coloring, had not her recent experience left her drawn and haggard. The lady lay back exhausted upon a couch, but her quick observant gaze as we entered the room and the alert expression on her beautiful features showed that neither her wits nor her courage had been shaken by this terrible experience. She was enveloped in a loose dressing gown of blue and silver, but a black sequin-covered dinner dress was hung upon the couch beside her. I know we're, we're jumping ahead to the next story, but this is the introduction of uh, of Hope's wife. A moment later, our modest apartment, already so distinguished in that morning, was further honored by the ent entrance of the most lovely woman in, in London. I had often heard of the beauty of the youngest daughter of the Duke of Belminster, but no description of it and no, con no contemplation of colorless photographs had prepared me for the subtle, delicate charm and the beautiful coloring of that ex exquisite head. And yet as, he, yet, as we saw it that autumn morning, it was not its beauty which would be the first thing to impress the observer. The cheek was lovely, but it was pale with emotion. The eyes were bright, 
but it was the brightness of fever. The sensitive mouth was taut, was tight and drawn in effort after self-command. Terror, not beauty, was what sprang first to the eye as our fair visitor stood framed for an instant in the open door. If that doesn't tight mouth tight and drawn and those kind of imagery if that does not encapsulate victorian re- sexual repression i don't know what does yeah yeah you're good to point that out and of course we've got two like you say the next story also features a really beautiful woman that watson can't seem to you know let come into the the home without describing that way yeah he's he comes off a bit randy I'll, I'll, I'll... <laughs> randy yeah he does you know what i mean yeah, I got a few notes on this story before, or perhaps while we, we, we chew out our uh, pipes. Yes. <clears throat> um, the first of, of course, this has got a really famous beginning um, with Holmes waking Watson up and telling him to get moving, right? Come, come. Love the, game, it. the game is afoot. Yeah, it's great. Do you know, where, do you know where the game is afoot for, it comes from? I, I think you do. The game is afoot. Oh, from Shakespeare? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is it uh, Hamlet? No. Starts with an H, though. Oh. Henry the Fourth. Henry the Fourth. Part, yes. part one. Uh huh. Yep. Though elementary, my dear Watson, is more popularly known, it actually doesn't appear anywhere in the canon whatsoever. But this no. does, and that's that's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, Henry the Fourth, Part One. That's right. Anyway, uh, yeah, that, that's it's a great start to this story. I really like the way the investigation begins um, with that sort of impact. You know, it, it gives the same effectiveness narratively to the way starting in the middle of a conversation can in a certain story or a certain setting. You know, it, it just gives an immediacy to the action and um, it's just a new way of doing something. And I'm glad at this stage to see him doing something new. Yes, like you get Tom honestly like sick of that like every Baker, you know that Baker Street introduction something you know they're sitting down talking about something or yeah, Holmes yeah. making some observ- amazing observation out of nowhere and then all of a sudden you know Hopkins or Lestrade's at the door or something like that or a client's at the door you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you see this bit? <clears throat> Where am I? He's talking. Yeah, Holmes is talking <laughs> with Watson, right? And they're like. And Watson gets a little offended, right? Because Holmes is like, "Oh, Watson, you don't write these stories properly. You know, you're all about the <laughs> you're all about the entertainment factor and not about not about the surgical details of, of deduction." And Holmes is like, "Well," or Watson says, "Why don't you write your own?" Right? And Holmes says, "Yes, I intend to," or whatever. In <laughs> fact, I didn't know this until I read the annotations, but there are two stories coming up in the casebook of Sherlock Holmes that are actually written by Holmes. Interesting. So well, that'll, that'll be fun to get to those to see. Because at the very least, it shows Doyle doing something different, you know? Yes. So it's it's cool to see that. I guess all I can offer is to watch this space, you know, and we'll we'll get there when we get there. We'll get there when we get there, indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought it was funny. You mentioned in your plot summary uh, the <laughs> the cudgel of Sir Eustace, right? And, yes. And um, it, it was his favorite cudgel. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking to myself... <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, it's a simple thing, right? Just reading it on the page. But the fact that Sir Eustace has a favorite weapon of punishment, like, really enables us to side easily with his wife, right? Because... If saying the dog on fire doesn't already accomplish that. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. In in the adaptation, he drowns the dog. Oh, dear God. Yeah, it's it, the dog, like, the, the, dog, the dog's tombstone is found in the swamp. Like, it's really creepy. Anyway. I, I just thought, like, you know, her abusive experience does draw 
some pretty serious uh, sympathy from the reader. Oh, absolutely. And that's the whole point is so that like this is a total uh, example of the asshole victim, right? Yeah, totally. And we've seen it before, too, haven't we, with uh, The Crooked Man? The Crooked Man, yes. That locked room mystery. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, okay. Let me, let me just let me go first with the pipes. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say what I want to say here about the um, the principles. It hasn't happened in a while, Josh, and I understand Watson had a reduced role kind of here, but I do like the banter. I do like yes. I, I do kind of like the chat between the two of them. I like his observations, even if they're a little juvenile, a little horny. I don't mind that because it, it, it's no. character drawing, right? Exactly. It hasn't happened in a while, and I like the way Watson it's came consistent. in. It's consistent. I like the way that Watson came in at the end, acting as jury, you know, to the whole morality thing. Yes. I went I went full marks five for the principles here. And I, I I realized that if I was in the middle of the adventures or the memoirs, I might not be going for a five here. But the fact is, I've been waiting for a tale for a while now where I feel there's a simpatico, there's an excitement, there's a reason to cheer for both of these guys. And it would have been, had Watson not been involved in the end with that, 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 that sort of phony judiciary, it would have been a 4.5. But because Watson was given some agency and some credit by Holmes as the best jury imaginable, <laughs> I... Of course, he makes himself judge, but you know, I went five. I went five. I wanted to. I felt it was time, and I maybe I can fault them. Yes, but well, you know, the aesthetics sh- of it made me go five. Well, to share your zeitgeist, there, uh, I had four point five originally for the perpetrator for the principles, and uh, I'll go for a full five on this too. I, I definitely agree with you. I love the agency of Watson in this story. I don't care if he sprouts wood. Good for him. That's agency <laughs> to me. So that's agency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think five is 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 very very fair, and I think it's the the principles are the strongest part of this story. I actually also like the investigation as well, how it was laid out. Um, there wasn't any kind of ridiculous twists to this story, and, and yes, it was kind of predictable in some capacity. Um, the I think Holmes was was the game was indeed afoot and. Uh, everything about the energy of the characters in this story really compelled me to to enjoy it. So five is a fair mark. Good. Um, <clears throat> I also want to point out, you know, that Holmes completely takes the law into his own in, into his own little hands here, his own world. You know, his own. I like that order. lawless, that kind of like that neutral or that chaotic good. I guess yeah. if you use Dungeons and Dragons uh, um, alignments. Uh, he's that chaotic good, you know what I mean? Like, he, he's a force of good and uh, in the world, but he realizes that the laws, the, the law, ju- sometimes justice can be blind because of how it has to, to, to stay to adhere to law. Mm-hmm. And in order to have true justice, you have to make compromises um, that, that, you know, that, a, that the court of law just cannot agree upon, you know, for the sake of public order. But that's what makes humanity interesting, and that's why I think Holmes kind of stands out here in the story. Yeah, I agree with you. He has a lot of respect for Crocker, and you can see that. It's not written on the page, but you can see that because of his gestures towards him. And I like the way he says, you know, you go away for a year, and then you come back when things have died down, and perhaps you can have this girl, you know, this this girl that you once had, and, and you've kind of saved her from the hands of villainy and abusive future. You know, I, I like all of that stuff, but... I, you become a bit of a softy. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I guess that's not wrong to say that. But 
I also think back to the study in Scarlet where we had that wonderful description of Holmes's mind attic, you know, and how he yes. how he um, processes and organizes information, only retaining the important things that will trigger other important things. I feel like this is another great example of of how um, we're dealing with a character that is on the autistic spectrum. And the reason I feel that way is because most people empathetically, most people empathetically would take with them the real fact that they have done an illegal business in not involving the police, that they have made a decision to withhold information from the police. And the fact that he does this and can do it jovially, can do it uh, as a, a game almost with Crocker at the end here and not carry that with him processing forward in life, I think that is a great example of how his mind works differently to other people and mm-hmm. to, the, to the majority perhaps. Because let's face it, if we took the law into our own hands, we would be worried about consequence. We would be worried about how we would be judged. We would be worried about did we do the right thing? Should we have communicated and involved the process of law but he doesn't and we know because of his mind attic because of the way he processes things he will cast this to the side he will not doubt himself he will not have any sort of feeling of guilt or emotional remorse towards this decision and i really like that character feature of him it i mean it's remarkable still because we're years away from a definition of what Asperger's is, of what what uh, autism is. You know, there's no real understanding of this yet. I think we're seeing in true color here a character who can forget whatever he wants to forget and show very little empathy for, you know, law and society when it comes to his own moral compass. Yes, absolutely. I also feel that you're right on that score because. I think too. You got to think about how he thinks the calculating machine. You know, it's. I think he weighed the pros and cons as well. I mean, so Sir Eustace, who is a piece of shit, uh, is killed. Yes, you know, public order has to be maintained. Blah blah blah. But at the same time, this will destroy the lives of Lady Brackenhall most likely, as well as Croker, who really does not deserve it. You know, for defending. Uh, himself from a, a madman with his, who actually has a favorite cudgel. Yeah, I think Holmes knew what the he, he knew he knew he knew logically what kind of character Sir Eustace was, and he knew that this investigation would end up being a case of like you know the, the, the jurisprudence of you know of, of misjudged jurisprudence. That to me, it just it just seemed that it was the only option, and that's exactly what goes on with the line of thinking about this spectrum. Um, autistic kind of ideal that you have your own moral compass and you can cast aside that what he did was wrong. Mm-hmm. Even when Wap- even even like even Watson is it's kind of shocked at how he pretty much lied to Hopkins that it, by withholding uh, information and he said you think that was bad that, that was a bad thing for me to do and about but about Watson and one of the, which was. Another example, the bang on writing that uh, Watson was given was, I trust your judgment. This isn't just him following Sherlock Holmes along. This is him understanding how Sherlock is thinking and that being conveyed in the story. Yeah. And I, I think that's what that also adds more more um, uh, reason to give the principles of five 
and to me anyways, also to give the investigation a a stronger mark as well. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that. And I'm actually really happy that we're talking super positively about a story here because I feel like we haven't done this in a while. I mean, obviously, we've had a lot of fun. We've had good chats, but I finally feel like with the return, we're getting a, a great story, one that Doyle is excited about. And to know that this was what he intended to be his last home stories ever is you know, well, uh, almost until he remembered his uh, his responsibility. Contracts. Yeah, but this was the <laughs> end. You know, this could have been the end of his strand, at least, relationship. I think that, again, he's put an effort in here. And maybe he is going an extra little bit to finish this off. And he is happy to rest his character with this case. Because I feel that this is a deftly written story. I sense a depth of character. There are fun clues that I'm following as a reader, as opposed to just getting everything at the end and, oh... I, I got to follow Holmes. Now I can kind of go with him and make my own hypotheses. And those are the best adventures where I'm not yes. left to look at him and say, what a brilliant guy. I was just having to get to the end where he would info drop the solution for me that he already met. But now I'm getting to play along. And if I'm wrong, cool, that's fine. I'm still playing along with the clues and I'm enjoying what game Doyle's putting on the page for me. Exactly. In, in the other two, so far at least, I haven't been having much of a game. So the Abbey Grange for me, in terms of investigation, because it's deftly writ, as I said, because we're playing a good game with Holmes, because I'm enjoying the clues and the characters, and I feel that there is a certain sense of uh, moral retribution, I'm involved, I'm interested, and I went full marks for the investigation here too. I went 4.5. I'm going to stay with that a bit. I kind of wish that Croker was introducing the story a little earlier. I think he comes out of left field a little bit near the end. I he understand does. He does. why he does, but that's the only reason why I'm not going to a full five marks. But everything else you said is dead on. Uh, the investigation is perfectly layered. The clues are there. You could be wrong. You could be right. But you know that he's seen something. You're trying to put things together. The, just how I think the environs there is also key on describing uh, on, on, on enforcing how strong the investigation and the narrative is of the overall s- story because um, those descriptions in the environs are key to you understanding the investigation as well. So mm-hmm. that's why the environs will also get a strong mark from me from this story as well. Yeah, the environs are good. Um, but before we get there, the perpetrators, I went for a four with my perpetrator. I did um, as well. I, I like Eustace. Obviously, he is a perpetrator. Uh, though he wasn't the one who you know crippled the striking blow, he was still complex enough that we looking at him as a hero slash villain. Uh, oh, sorry, Croker. Sorry. Yeah, not yeah, Eustace. It, yeah, sorry. Thank you. Uh, but I went for a four because it's working as part and parcel of the narrative investigation. It's good stuff here. I don't think any reader who's picking up this story would be disappointed. And I feel like finally I've got a tale that I could offer as a standalone episode of a great piece of work that shows off the character and what Doyle does at his best here. And so yeah. where everything Minus, like, works. like kind of the Baskervilles. Exactly. There's kind of that flavor to it. So I went for a four and you two went for a four. I did, yes. I, yeah. I, I, I kind of split on Croker, uh, even Millie Brackenhall to an extent, uh, as well as um, Lord Brackenhall on the whole, you know, uh, per- sharing the role of the perpetrator. Um, so I think four is a good mark because Lord Eustace is a piece of shit. There wasn't really much complexity to him, but he was also the victim, so we never really got to know him too much. Kroger comes in at the last act, and you know he's a Jefferson Hope type character in his own way, um, probably a little more noble. Uh, yeah, there are two or three like that. 
Yeah, there are. <laughs> there Who's, are. What was the name of the guy? The the perp in uh, the cardboard box. Remember the guy who ended up in a rowboat, beating his uh, his wife and her her boyfriend. Oh yeah, his name. He had a Jefferson in his name too. Did I can't remember, but he's kind of like a a better version of him. Yeah, he yeah he didn't allow anger to you know take take <laughs> over him and beca- and yeah. make him the perpetrator. He was like he was on on the, he he was on the, on the opposite end where the perpetrator was. Yeah. If you think about it, so really the story is just is just him car- is carving up the death of the perpetrator. <laughs> in a sense, yeah, I think you're right, yeah. but that's okay, you know, because okay. we're having fun getting there. That's um, right. What did you say for environment? Um, I give it a solid four. Okay. I, I thought the description of the dining room, uh, the dining room of the French window, um, the, the wine glasses, um, the whole meeting between Holmes and Croker back at the apartment, um, all of those things, I, I think they were workmanlike, yes, and they weren't really full of overly great detail, but they were written well. And I think they helped they helped provide the clues that we needed to piece the case together as we went along with Sherlock Holmes. So that's why I gave it a strong mark because it helped the characters and it helped the story. Mm-hmm. And it did. And a lot of the clues within the environment, as you say, allowed Holmes to reflect and kind of reposition his thoughts. Like I liked when they were on the train, you know, and then uh, at the platform he turns because the, the the penny drops with the the bee swing in the in the wine and he says yes. no we've got to go back we've got to go back and then he thinks about the the, the bell cord particularly and i'll get to that in a few moments but yes. all these little Sailor's features knock. these little features that kind of creep back and i, I really really the really like that yeah yeah but i the environment didn't speak quite as much to me as it did to you i'm only a shade below you at a 3.5 okay um but it was a good working part of the, like, the home itself, Brackenstall's home. Yeah, all of the things within that murder scene are quite good. Outside of that, I don't think there's really that much going on. No, in terms no. of, you know, what we're getting and rendered. And or it's probably a little generous, but I think overall, I just like, there's just strong elements of the story overall that I just think it's, I think, I think, I think it's justified. Fair enough. Uh, I do like the little features we get, like you're saying, the knot and the fact that Holmes goes back and sees the uh, the wine and the bee swing I consider that environmental and of course the the cord which is cut instead of just pulled you know and the way he deduces that later and it, it all features of environment kind of in a way um, <clears throat> the secondary characters I went for a four yeah I, I was I, happy I with too. all it of them it was a strong cast of characters um, and uh, I don't think they went as high as like the investigation or the or the main characters were to me, who were kind of like the fixtures of the story, but they supported the story well enough. So this is again another case of giving the um, uh, one part of our pipes um, a high mark because how well it contributed to our enjoyment of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, we both got a total of twenty-one point five for this story, and I feel like if we had more time, there's more we could have teased out with the wine glasses because that was a big part of the story. Yeah, one thing and... I didn't quite. If you, if you can elaborate on this just a little bit, sure, yeah. What, yeah. So is B swing kind of like the like the the legs of the wine glass, the legs of the wine, or like the tannins, or? Yeah, it's the sediment, right? The sediment, the sediment. That's, that's produced. Let me uh, let me read it to you. I got a note made here, and I do think it's worth reading because there were various theories and arguments over the specification of wine. So allow me, if uh, and it's only a short note, really. Um, <clears throat> 
It makes me wonder, though. I wonder if Croker is kind of lying a little bit on how, on, what, on how that wine was poured. Do you honestly not think that maybe they probably all had a glass of wine in celebration of that bastard being dead? Maybe, maybe. But this is uh, how it's described, okay? Uh, right. So, Beeswing is a translucent, flaky film found in older wines, particularly those such as Port, that are bottle-aged for many years. The Dictionary of Phrase and Fable provides that a port drinker is very particular not to break the Beeswing by shaking the bottle or turning it the wrong way up. What was the wine in the glasses? The most important clue is the presence of the beeswing, which generally manifests itself in crusted port, a rare and costly wine. But there are other telling signs. A. The wine had been left on the sideboard after dinner, suggesting that it was not drunk with dinner, but perhaps was intended for later drinking. This confirms that the wine was a after-dinner wine, such as port. B. Sir Eustace was, quote, one of the richest men in Kent, according to Hopkins. His lifestyle was more nouveau riche than of the landed gentry, and he made a show of his wealth, used monogram paper, displaying a coat of arms and sporting a foppish nightshirt. Thus, despite the fact that he was a confirmed drunkard and probably no longer particular about his own source of intoxication, for the sake of appearances, he would have stocked his wine cellar with the showiest, most expensive wines available. This suggests a bottle from the 1834 vintage, one of the most renowned of the mid-19th centuries, according to Michael Broadbent's The New Great Vintage Wine Book. The giant of the vintage was Kopka's Quinta de Royos. Although this type of port is no longer in existence, Nicholas Utekin verifies that in some remarkable wines, there, uh, that it was sold by Harrods in 1895 for 60 pounds a dozen. Of course, there can be no certainty with such scant evidence, but the 1834 Quinta de Rory's does seem a likely candidate for the sideboard. <laughs> and that's a, that's a little taste of how some of these annotations go. You know, they, they kind of summarize the Sherlockian theory and, and try to even get down to what type of wine, what type of port was on the sideboard. But yes. But, that, that's, but that, uh, that's a good point you make, though, because you describing the B-Swing and, and uh, Brackenhall using port and everything like that just goes again to reinforce again what a shitty person this man is mm-hmm. and and how you know it was all this ostentation of his wealth was just really a show um a facade you know that, uh, that was that was that, that was hiding a vicious raging alcoholic yeah indeed we got there in different ways buddy but our final score for the abbey grange are identical 21.5 and that's one of our Just looking up the list here, that's one of our highest scoring stories in some time. In fact, I can confirm that that is indeed our highest scoring story of the entire collection. Wow. Yeah. So that's good. I'm glad we saw eye to eye on that one. And I'm also glad that I'm in a position to share with you the musical selection for The Adventure of the Abbey Grange. I'm sure, Josh, that you will not disagree with me. Nay, in fact, I'm sure you'll support me in saying that Really, in addition to the wine glasses, the key piece of evidence here, which clued up the case for Holmes, was the bell rope. Would you agree with that? Yes, indeed. So, in continuing that idea, you might even say that Holmes was, in terms of the case, truly saved by the bell. When I wake up in the morning, the alarm is out of
<laughs> Gotta love that guitar solo near the end. <laughs> 